I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore, except for when the train goes by or the light rail goes by, but whatever. Anyway, this episode, ahead of spooky season, I wanted to watch a scary movie, um, so I picked a film, and it turned out to be a Bloomhouse film. And I'm starting to get a sense of what to expect from Bloomhouse films. Um, but anyway, the, the film that I watched was Madre's. Um, and I want to talk about it. But first, I also watched the premiere episode of Insecure's final season. Um, and, and it was a good kind of solid start. Um, if you're not familiar with Insecure, it is a series that was produced by, produced and starring um, Issa Rae, who actually created the series based off of her YouTube series, Awkward Black Girl. Um, Issa Rae has been a producer, content creator for over a decade at this point. And I think I caught her in the, when she was on the upswing, like in the very beginning, um, not the very beginning, but like when she started to gain popularity with the show, Awkward Black Girl. I remember, um, I remember watching the whole thing from start to finish. And I remember thinking, this is really interesting. And, and how in the world can they produce a TV show on YouTube? That was, that was my first introduction to actual TV shows on YouTube. Now, I'm quite sure that they existed before that. Like, we, people were always bootlegging um, movies and shows and putting them on, on YouTube, but I'd never seen an original show on, put on YouTube before. And so, to me, it opened that world up um, that I had never been a part of before. And so, I just, it was innovative from the start. It also had... Criticism from the start, just as this um, series has criticism. Um, I can remember Awkward Black Girl, and I'm sh- I-, I know you can still find it on Issa's Rays. I don't even remember what her channel is called, but I'm sure you can, it, when you search it on YouTube, you'll be able to find it still, it, uh, unless you have to pay for it, which makes sense that it would be behind a paywall at this point. But anyway, if you're able to find it, um, however you're able to watch it, it's it's a little it's a little um formulaic it's a little uh baity in a lot of ways um i think i remember a quote from isa saying that one of her friends say saying that once you get in when you have a tv show if you if you really want to get on you got to put white people in your show and so an awkward black girl her love interest is called Literally, it's, <laughs> she doesn't even hide it. Not only is he a white character, but his name is White J. And so it's like her blatantly saying, well, let me see if this thing works. And actually, I, it was the Awkward Black Girl series that put her on. Now, whether or not it was specifically adding the character White J and then the white people that were leading the... Um, the agency that she was a part of, that job that she hated, the dead-end job that she hated, that got the attention of producers at HBO or 
other producers that ultimately showed it to producers at HBO? I don't know the answer to that question, but I, it, I can't help but feel like she was pandering um, in that moment because we all know how hard it is for predominantly brown, Asian, black, you know, it's the, for the brown folks. Any shade of brown, we know in the United States how hard it is to get any of those productions greenlit. And so, however, how, whatever it was, it was on the pure merit of the show itself because Awkward Black Girl was really good. Awkward Black Girl was really, really good um, and, and deserved its own show based on, it deserved to be on a bigger platform based purely on the content of the show. Um, Because it was just funny. It was funny. Anyway, um, but regardless, um, for her to be able to get to HBO and then somebody pointed this out and now I can't unsee it. So in the very first season, she was at, uh, she worked at this, this, um, yeah, I think it was just the first season of... um, insecure. She worked at this job called We Got Y'all. It was a community-based organization and it was supposed to be centering, it was supposed to be supporting black and brown kids um, in the inner city, trying to give them, you know, more resources and hope and things like that and mentorship and things like that. But it was predominantly, it was, it was the executive director was a white woman. It was predominantly, um, the office was predominantly white. There were only a few black and brown or in the brown family, people of color in the whole office to begin with. Um, And so there was this whole back and forth. It it very much gave me, it was essentially lending itself to the environment that um, Issa worked in, in um, Aqua Black Girl. I do not remember the name of that office in Aqua Black Girl, but anyway. but it just reminded me that it, the, the work environment that she was in um, and Insecure reminded me of the one in uh, Aqua Black Girl. Anyway, so, so yeah, that first season, every, that infamous first season where we're getting to know her, we're getting to know the intricacies of the, the nuances to her relationship with Lawrence and, um, you know, her friends and, and all of that stuff. We're also understanding that she's in a dead-end job that she does not like, and she's trying to figure out what she really wants. She's really trying to find passion, but she knows it's not it. We got y'all. Anyway, and so, you know, we have the ups and downs of her being one of the few people of color, one of the few black folks in the office who are looking at some of the, the initiatives that the, the job is trying to, to do with these kids and and, and feeling like, ah, this is a little white savior complex, but also being awkward around these kids who are like, listen, yep, white savior complex, check. But like, generally speaking, a lot of people love coming to impoverished neighborhoods or um, low income neighborhoods and low income communities as like freaking tourists, even if they look like you talking about we gonna help. Everybody wants to come and help, but they don't like stay and rebuild infrastructure. They don't stay and help change the political atmosphere so that there could be some sustainable growth, right? So there was a there was a tinge of that in the very first season. 
Um, and to be honest with you, I do appreciate the fact that throughout the series, there's a, there is a healthy conversation, I believe, about social tourism. I don't know that it's directly, it's like as direct as I'm describing it now, but there is a com- there's a conversation about social tourism, um, which we all should be careful of and we should all be aware of. Um, anyway, but the thing that trips me out is I believe the, the thing that I can't not notice now is the fact that so first season had, it was still a predominantly black cast, but it had, it still centered the folks and we got y'all, which again, funny season. The show is funny itself. It's just, it's interesting to see how the, how it shifted from episode one, uh, from season one to season two and three and four and, and, and the fifth one here, I think we're on five. I think so. I can't remember anyway, that it just slowly progressed to being predominantly black cast, like focusing exclusively on this predominantly black cast that has, uh, that, that, that where the diaspora, um, Molly, Molly, cause Molly's, um, I don't know why I just said it. Like I'm th- I was thinking of the name. I was trying to think of the name of Issa's best friend in the show. And it's Molly. Um, Molly's boyfriend at one time is Dro, who's um, Afro-Latino. And that was, uh, you know, I appreciate that representation because some people act like Afro-Latinos don't exist, which is wild because black folks are everywhere. Like everywhere. Anyway, but no, that was that. So seeing an aspect of the diaspora, because certainly not everyone in the diaspora is represented. I don't even think the characters of Issa and Molly, even though the, the actresses are, um, their people are from West Africa, no, East African countries. I don't know that their characters are represented as first generation immigrants or first generation children of new immigrants. But there feels like there is this small conversation about both respectability politics and also the the pressures to succeed that first generation kids have to that that pressure that they're under. Um, Yeah, I wish there was I actually don't think the conversation about respectability politics was strong enough. I think it could have been stronger, especially in light of the conversation that's happening now about the AKA, um, one of the characters being an AKA. And I'm not even going to talk about the ups, the uproar about the usage of the, the shield being a Greek member myself, a member of Sigma Gamma Rose Sorority Incorporated. Like, I know a lot of people are making fun of this whole situation. And certainly there are a whole lot of people who, they're members of Alpha Kappa Alpha and they have a right to uh, be frustrated. I just, I just question the merits of being frustrated on social about this particular thing that feels like a very internal and pointed conversation to the leadership. But people love living their whole entire lives on social media. So I get why people were from the organization or that are members of the organization we're chatting about it on social because everybody likes to be the first one to expose this, this, this whoopsie, right? But like, not a conversation you should be having on social. Not a conversation you should be having on social. If you have a question, 
you should turn that baby inward because that's what your that's what your national organization is about. That's like what it's for, right? But to everybody making fun. So that's the thing that I found offense. I took offense to like, why are y'all talking about this on social? Like y'all don't have a national office that y'all can just go ask that question to. Why are you attacking the actress? Which by the way, some of y'all do not know the difference between acting and real life. I think social media, uh, well, social media, but I think also reality TV show has got us all kind of twisted a little bit because she was acting. Uh, Talking about, um, oh, Amanda Seals, but I can't remember what her character's name is. But anyway, that's the actress, my dears. There have been plenty of, of, um, non-black Greek members wearing the letters in the shows before you don't, if you're playing a character, it's make-believe baby. If that character is a member of a Greek organization, they're going to wear the insignia. They're going to wear the paraphernalia. Like, duh, it happens, baby. You're going to be okay. I just think sometimes we get, it's like a combination of us living our whole lives on social and wanting to be the first to expose a big, uh, a big deal, like a big issue, wanting to be the person, the first person to make this thing go viral and be credited with, with uncovering this. Um, and then also just not using common sense. That is definitely anybody who's a member of a, any of our Greek organizations recognize that there's a protocol in place. And if you've got a question in the world about the usage of any of, um, the likenesses of your organization, or at least at the very least the shield or the names, you should probably turn that conversation inward first. Um, but this is a conversation, honestly, that happens every 30 to 60 business days in the black Greek world, honestly, because some I, I was watching, I think I was watching um, Kevin on stage and uh, everybody knows Angel is a Delta. And so um, she was talking about how the Angela Bassett TV show um, was the one where she's like a fire woman or something paramedic or something. Anyway, you know that uh, uh, that Angela Bassett in real life is an honorary member of Delta Sigma Theta. Um, anyway, and so in the show, she's like, if you are a member of a Greek organization, you can wear those. You can wear the, you can wear your letters in, in anything that you're doing. But if you are a public figure or if you are in a, in if you are in a TV, well, if you're a public figure, you can, if you're, <coughs> if you're doing like a public address or whatever, go, go hard. Like that's representation for your, for your commute, your, uh, organization. You don't have to get permission, um, to wear that depending on if it's like a political sort of thing, then you, there are certain ways that you can, there are certain instances where you cannot wear your paraphernalia because these are nonprofit, non-political organizations, right? So you can't wear the paraphernalia, you can wear the colors, can't wear the paraphernalia. In, a t- in something like a TV show or a movie, if you are a member, you can wear them, but you still need to get clearance. And these people are not understanding clearance for usage of a brand. Even though you're a member, even though on your own, you, I could, on my own, I can wear Sigma Gamma Rose Shield anywhere I choose to go, but there are certain guidelines under where, under like, what I should be doing, what is not, what I shouldn't be doing when I'm being photographed or on film or what I'm putting up on social. Like there are certain guidelines that I have to follow as a member. And so too, um, do you have to follow them even if you're on a TV show? And so Angela Bassett's character is a Delta in it. She's a Delta in real life, but she's also a Delta in the show. And, um, I was watching Kevin on stage and Angel had, um, either Angel or Kevin, 
um, said that there was a big controversy maybe a couple of months ago, maybe a couple of years ago, when the, whenever the show came out, there was a flashback of a young Angela Bassett's character who was in a Delta Sigma Theta t-shirt and people were mad. Some members of, of uh, this, that of Delta Sigma Theta were mad because the actress herself was not a Delta, is not a Delta. And I'm just like, y'all, it's acting. And if this, whether or not this organization, whether or not this show this film, this production company got clearance from the national organization to utilize that, 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 um, the logo, the shield. Any questions you have about that really should be turned internally. Stop being weird on social. Like that's, that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest thing to me. Stop being weird on social. And now let me switch gears a little bit for everyone that's making fun of black Greek organizations um, and, and everybody that's piping up about being mad or about whether or not Issa got clearance from AKA national, AKA headquarters to use the shield, take a step back. If you own, if you have a brand, you have a business, you have a shield, you have a slogan, right? You have a logo and a slogan, right? A shield is it, it just replace shield with logo. You have a logo and you have a slogan. You find out that someone else is using your slogan, your logo, and there's no question that it's your stuff. And it's no question that your stuff, you would, not only would you be you would want to speak to that organization, that business, what have you, and you'd be very frustrated, but you would also want to make sure that you recouped any money, any benefit that they got from the usage of your logo and your slogan. And you would be right to, because anybody that establishes a business, you have an LLC, you go through the, the, the legal things to establish your business, to pull that thing, to, 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 Bring that thing to, to existence, into existence, right? So you put all your energy into it to protect your business. To and, and in protecting your business, a part of that is making sure no one else can benefit from the usage of your stuff without your permission. And when you give permission, you can determine how they use that thing. Now, mind you, the the in 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 this context, like in the context of the show. It's not as if the character that Amanda Seals is playing is like anything more than bougie and living with, uh, still dealing with depression and probably in this case, uh, postpartum, right? Because um, very much the show, this, their very first episode gives you the sense that not too much time has passed since the last episode in the season or the last couple of episodes in the season where we saw Amanda Seals' character having a baby and then that baby, or then, and then Amanda, her, the, Amanda's character dealing with postpartum. And there was a whole, I think the last episode actually was her dealing with postpartum. And it's clear that it has been a very stressful new parent um, situation for her, Derek and her, Amber, um, um, Amber Seals, what's her name? Amanda Seals' husband in the show 
the guy's name is Derek. I just don't remember what her Tiffany, Tiffany, Amanda Seals character's name is Tiffany. Anyway, so Tiffany and Derek have barely been going through it as a couple being new parents, but Tiffany has been experiencing um, postpartum. And then Derek is trying to, has been navigating as a new father, also trying to navigate as a husband, supporting his wife through this very difficult period, right? So in the new, in the new, this episode of the, the final season, like we see them wanting to get away from all drama, including the drama between Molly and Issa who fell out in the last season and had kind of been falling out for a while, but like they really, they fell out, fell out in the last season. So anyway, um, yeah, so it's not as if she, the, Tiffany is portrayed as anything more than a little bougie and, a, and, and yeah, a little bougie to be honest with you because we're seeing more of her human side, right? But at the same time, if AKA is saying that they didn't have a say in, in the usage of their logo and how this character would be portrayed. Not that they would have a, at the very least, they can't tell Issa or, or no company could tell you using their logo, how the person who's wearing their logo should be treated, should behave. But what they can say is how you're using your logo and you got the, to give permission. Like, I don't understand why that's a weird concept. And actually, Issa's kind of stoking the flames a little bit because it's clear, even from her awkward black girl days, that like the whole black Greek thing to her, I don't know that she's a fan of black Greekdom, but she is a fan of business. She is a fan of business and she is a fan of of doing what's right for business owners. You and people who are part, who, yeah. Oh, welcome to the fall. (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, so I just think this whole thing is a little funny. Um, And I think if people just took a step back, instead of using this as an opportunity to bash black Greeks and black Greek organizations who are full of flaws, let's be for real. And some of the people that flock to black Greek organizations, I see this in my own organization. Um, Sometimes people flock to black Greek organizations. They're doing it for the clout. They're not doing it for the fun of it. They're not doing it to be cute. Just, just they're literally doing it for the clout and to feel better than someone else. But nobody in these organizations are better than, even regardless of anything that anyone has ever said. These organizations were all started at the genesis of these things as a protection, or at least I could, at least for Sigma Gamma Rho. Sigma Gamma Rho was started as a as a means of protection for these seven women on um, Indiana Normals, Butler, excuse me, Butler University's normal teacher college. That was what they call teacher colleges in normal. Um, Predominantly white university, Kappa Alpha Psi, same thing. Alpha Psi Alpha, same thing. They were all Cornell, um, Indiana University, and Butler. All three of those, Alpha is Cornell, um, Kappa is Indiana University. Um, And Sigma Gamma Rose Butler, teacher normal that is ultimate that ultimately grew into Butler University. But and even the ones that were all um, even the rest of the Divine Nine that was well, um, Iota Phi Theta, well, Iota Phi Theta, Alpha Kappa Alpha, Delta Sigma Theta, uh, Zeta Phi Beta, Phi Beta Sigma. 
except for Iota was Iota was established on Morgan's campus, Morgan State University's campus. The rest of the ones that I named were uh, established on um, Howard's campus, but those were still created as a means of support and protection. All of the at their core, y'all. Please, if you're not a member of the the um, Black Greek organization, please, at their core, these were protection organizations, y'all. These were created as protection, even if they were created on a predominantly black campus. Howard is in the middle of, is in DC, y'all. Like, let's be for real. It's not exactly in the most friendly place, especially when they were all established. Let's be for real. Come on. And so these are stories, these are the oldest institutions, some of the oldest institutions that black Americans have in the United States. So that has to mean something. Can't, but but at the end of the day, this is also social media. People just love bashing for bashing's sake. And again, I'm not saying that the criticism of Black Greek organizations does not have merit. It does. I'm a member. I'm an active member. I'm in leadership too. I see it. <laughs> I see it everywhere. I see I see how disrespectful new members can be. I see how entitled even seasoned members can behave. I see it. I understand. I understand the frustration behind that because it's not reflective of the organizations themselves. Yet and still, these are organizations who have a legal right to tell you when and where to use, when, where, and how to use their logo. That is the conversation. It's just like a restaurant. It's just like a restaurant. Look at all these TikTok creators, all these TikTok creators that we wanted them to get their just due. We wanted them to get a check. It's the same concept. That's their brand. Yes or no? They created this content. Their brand is being fun black kid doing these fun things, right? And then what were we what were we frustrated about not 6 months ago? All these white creators not creating anything new of their own but taking from these black creators. It's the same concept. Why are we not getting it? Anyway, I've talked way too long about this very simple concept that I'm sure anybody that listens to this show gets, or I hope you do. But anyway, I just, is I guess the thing that's interesting to me is the conversation outside of the show is more spicy than the first episode itself, which feels like a good way to start the season. So it'll be interesting to see how this thing kind of plays out. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this thing kind of plays out, but let me switch gears because I could talk forever about this, but I won't. Um, so I'm excited for, uh, I'm excited to watch, um, the premiere of the harder they've come, even though it's on Netflix. Um, somehow or another, all the black Greek organizations have been contacted by Netflix to get their members to watch the premiere and to send their national leadership to go watch the premiere of the harder they come and I'm going to watch it. I I downloaded the link. I'm going to participate, but I got to be honest with you. I'm still not excited about Zazie Beetz portrayal of her character. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a super fan of that. Um, and I also saw in a clip that not only does, not only is Zazie supposed to be the, the character that the person that she's portraying, was a real life, heavyset, dark skinned, older black woman, gun toting older black woman. But like, Zazie Beats is none of those things. 
she's a black woman. She's just not older and she's not heavy set and she's not dark skinned. Um, but I saw that there's a, a clip in the show where she's in some sort of burlesque looking thing. It feels like it's a ruse or whatever, but like all those black people in that show. Like, I'm not saying Zazie doesn't have a place. I'm not saying light-skinned people don't have a place. I'm just saying the very real fact that, boy, can we ever just, in black shows, why is it that we can't ever just, we can't ever just get it all the way right? Like, we always got to do something. I mean, I would say it's just black shows, but it's not just black shows. Look at Dune. Look at Dune, and I'm not just talking about black people now. Look at the beigeness of that whole movie, beige to chalky white of that whole movie, right? And it's clear that it's clear that the movie is inspired in many ways by Arab culture. And yet, really don't see any characters. I don't see any actors whose heritage is in you know, Lebanon or, you know what I mean? Or, um, you know, Pakistan, Uzbekistan. Like, I really don't see those countries represented um, at all. I see a few people of color in there and even them, are they're kind of washed, washed out a little bit. And it's really, it's really interesting. So like, it's just in this film that I'm really excited to see, I'm conflicted because I really wish, even though I do believe, let me be clear about this. Zazie Beetz is a good actress. I, I like her. I like her a lot. Um, I think she's funny. I think she's interesting. I'm just tired of strong black women characters not being played. Like, especially if they're, if they, it's one thing if Zazie was playing a fictitious character. Do your thing, girl. Create whatever, do your thing. But she's not. She's portraying a real life person who didn't look like her. We got mad at um, what's old girl that played uh, Nina Simone and had, knew she had no business playing Nina Simone. Can't call her name. Zoe Zaldana. We got mad when she did that junk because it was wrong. It was wrong. And it seems like they only really do that with women. And the only time I've ever seen a dark-skinned player, a dark-skinned person play somebody who's light-skinned has been men. The Rock Johnson, when he played that coach, that uh, second chance, that last chance um, U-type football coach, like in that movie, I can't remember the name of the movie, but The Rock played, uh, excuse me, Dwayne Johnson played a white guy. The guy that he was actually playing was a white guy, but it's The Rock, so they're like, cool, we put you in there. And then Chadwick Boseman played Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall was very light-skinned. He was light-skinned. But it's Chadwick Boseman who played him down, right? But I have never, ever, unless I, I, and and let me know, I don't think I've ever seen a dark-skinned woman play a real-life character of of a, a real life person, a portrayal of a light skinned woman. And here's the, here's the issue. You know why that is, this is why it's a problem. And I'm just going to say it out there because I don't want folks to think that I'm just being uber weird. 
no matter the diaspora that you're a part of, especially, but if you're a part of a people of color diaspora, it means something to see dark-skinned women, no matter your diaspora, Asian diaspora, Latin, uh, Latinx, Latine, Latine, Hispanic diaspora, the African diaspora. It means something to see strong women characters of all shades of color. But unfortunately, we don't get that. And even in the harder they come, I love that um, Regina... I love Regina. I love that she's all up and through there. I love that the cast is uber brown. It's just frustrating that in this context, they could have done something different. It's not like they had to have Zazie Beetz portray this particular woman. She literally could have been anybody else. And I think that's the frustration. That's my frustration. I don't know about anybody else's frustration because I actually really like Zazie Beetz. I just, this wouldn't, this wouldn't. This particular person, I wish she was portraying somebody else. But anyway, I'm still going to watch The Harder They Come because ultimately I like shoot 'em up bang bangs. Like that's not, that's, we're going to do this. I'm watching the shoot 'em up bang bang. I love Westerns. And then black people Westerns, come on, come on. And it looks like black people are the good guy and black people are the bad guys. What? I don't see that often. I don't think, I can't point to too many cowboy movies where that's the case. The shoot 'em up bang bang movies, I can't point to too many westerns. I didn't, I didn't say three different names for the same thing. Westerns. I, I can't point to too many westerns where the quote unquote good guys, <coughs> excuse me, and the bad guys are black. Nope. I ain't seen it. I ain't seen it. Excited for it. Really excited for it. And before you say Django, think again. Think again. It, it wasn't, it wasn't the only good guy that was black was Jamie. Everybody else was either a damsel in distress. Carrie Washington's character was a damsel in, damsel in distress. Everybody else was something like a victim. And then Samuel L. was a bad guy. So like, it, it's, it, it, mm-mm, mm-mm. This is cool. This is going to be exciting. I hope it's going to be exciting. I can't wait to talk about it because I'm definitely going to talk about it next week. Anyway, but this week I'm talking about Madres, which again, I've come to under, I've come to know what to expect from Bloomhouse films. Bloomhouse films always be throwing me for a loop because I'd be thinking that they're one thing and then they turn around and there's something else. And I probably... It's also because I'm always going into these movies cold. I don't want to read reviews about them. I don't want to read too, I don't want to read the synopsis about it. I want to read what it is, what it's about from the movie description right before I watch it. I don't want to, I don't want anything else because I want to just go into a cold and I don't want to be influenced. Um, so yeah, so I will just share right now. I did appreciate the film. I really, really did. I had some problems with it. As I always have, I seem to always find problems with films, but I really did like this film. Um, And I actually can't wait to talk about it. I know none, I don't believe I know any of these actors. I don't think I know any of these actors, but I I appreciate the fact that this cast is predominantly Latin Hispanic, except for two characters, well, three characters. But everybody else is Latin Hispanic. I appreciate that immensely. I also appreciate the, I can't think of another way to say this, but the subtle teaching that is happening in it, because in a, in a time where we're talking about 
taking a critical race theory out of schools and not learning about uh, our past as in the United States and and not and our past includes people of color and the the ups and downs and the struggles that we've gone through like all of these stories got to get out somehow and so I do appreciate that uh, filmmakers are finding different ways to get these things out in movies in their in their work because these things are forever and so I really I do appreciate that regardless of what they're doing in the schools what have you I I'm I'm hopeful for the future that there's still going to be this information sharing in media, right? And I can appreciate that. So in the next segment, I'm going to talk all about Mondres. I'm going to give you the particulars, talk about what I loved, talk about what I didn't love so much, kind of give an overview of the movie. I might not, I'm going to try real, real hard not to spoil it, but I might end up spoiling it. So if you want to watch Mondres, just go ahead. Um, but yeah, just go ahead and watch it. Cause I'm probably going to end up spoiling it anyway. But if you are new to the show, thank you so much for listening. I probably should have said that in the beginning. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I ramble a lot as evidenced by this first little half, but I appreciate you for listening all the same. Stick around. Um, yeah. And be sure to rate the show favorably, like it and all of that stuff. Leave a positive, um, review and I will read it. Um, because that means a lot to me and, and you didn't have to do it. And you took your time. So I will read it, especially if it's positive. If it's not, I don't know why you spending that time. You just hateful. But um, anyway, in the next segment, it's all about uh, Bloomhouse's Madres. Okay, so as I said, Madres is a Bloomhouse film. It was released on October 8th of this month. Uh, anyway, um, its director is Ryan Zar- Zaragoza. I've never heard of him before. Music composed by Isabel Igman Bredvik. Uh, cinematography by Felipe Vara uh, DeRay. Executive producers... Lisa Bruce, Jeremy Gold, Jason Bloom, Marcy Wiseman. Wow. Okay. Uh, Sanjay Sharma, Matthew Myers, production company, of course, Bloomhouse and Amazon Studios. Oh, that's right. I did, did watch it on Amazon. This film stars Ariana Guerrera. Again, I don't think I've heard of any of these actors. Um, Ariana uh, Guerrera plays Diana, who's the lead character. Um, I can't remember if it's I need to hear this name pronounced, but it's either Tanakh or Tanach. I'm pretty sure it's Tanakh. Tanakh Huerta as Beto, who plays Diana's uh, husband. Um, Elpidia Carrillo, Carrillo um, who plays Anita. Uh, Carrie Cahill, play, who plays Nurse Carol. That's one of the only white people in this film, and she's a bad person. Um, Jennifer Patino, who plays Veronica, I think is, um, I think Veronica is Diana's sister and some other people. Um, okay. So here's the, the, the runtime on this baby is like an hour and 23 minutes. This baby is, is short. 
Like it, it goes pretty quickly. I will say that it goes pretty quickly. Um, at the moment, it's 4.7 out of 10 on IMDb. And I think I know why that is. Um, 60% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Let me click on that and tell you why. Um, real quick, it's 60% on the tomato meter, 37% audience score. 60% tomato meter with 15 reviews. 37% audience score with fewer than 50 ratings. And there really isn't... Um, yeah, there's really not a critical conversation about it, but I'll tell you why I think it's at 60% for the, for the reviewers and 47% or 4.7% uh, for IMDb. It's also 43% on Metacritic, but whatever. Um, and 66% of Google users like this film, um, <clears throat> of which I am one. Well, let me tell you why it's at 66%. It's like kind of middle of the road because the reality of it is this is this film is portrayed as a scary film, but it's actually reality horror. And it feels like when you're watching it, you've been tricked a little bit. Now, mind you, I did say earlier that I did appreciate films who were kind of carrying the educational torch because you certainly learn something out of this one. But I definitely feel tricked. I feel tricked. In this one. And to be honest with you, the, I saw this when it was released on the 8th. I saw it was released, or maybe not the 8th, but I saw it earlier this month. But I have been avoiding watching it because I don't... I told y'all, I've t- been told y'all, that things that I find extremely... <clears throat> scary movies that I truly find scary deal with spirituality. Kids something bothering kids or um, mothers, something bothering mothers. And because I'm going through the motherhood process at the moment, I'm not pregnant, but I'm going through, we're, we're working to become parents. I don't want that turning around in my head. I have an active imagination. So I'm, I put off watching this thing. I actually wasn't going to watch this thing. And then <coughs> it occurred to me that you know, a lot of the horror films that are out right now do not star people of color, let alone <coughs> have a predominantly um, <coughs> brown cast. So I was like, okay, <coughs> I keep coughing. Um, let me go ahead and <coughs> let me go ahead and watch this <coughs> film. So anyway, so I watched it in the morning because I already told y'all I'm a Freddy cat. And I watch things in the morning so that I can have a whole day of other things to put anything scary I've watched out of my mind. So I watched it early in the morning. And getting back to the reason why I think that um, critics and, and viewers alike kind of scored this middle of the road or just above middle of the road is because it tricks you. It really do trick you. It's scary. It's scary. But it's like it's also that type of reality horror that feels a little bit preachy, a little bit, just a little bit. And so while I don't think it's like, I actually think the rating is about spot on. I don't necessarily think it's 60%. I think 66% is about better. It's not quite 70. It's not 60. Um, it's not in the forties. I don't know what they talk about with the forties. It's not a bad film at all, but anyway, so let me get into it. So the synopsis of it is this, 
A Mexican-American couple expecting their first child relocate to a migrant farming community in 1970s California. When the wife begins to experience strange symptoms and terrifying visions, she tries to determine if it's related to a legendary curse or something more nefarious. Okay, so I've told you who all stars in it. I think for this point forward, I'm only going to talk about Diana Beto and... Um, Oh, I just got the, uh, just Beto O'Rourke. I wonder where his parents got his name. Anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm only going to talk about, <clears throat> I'm primarily going to talk about Diana and um, Beto, Beto. <clears throat> I'm also going to bring up um, Teresa and Anita, but only as it relates to uh, Diana. Anyway, so, all right, so the synopsis, once again, kind of doesn't tell the whole story and doesn't really, I mean, I guess it does lead you in, which is another reason why people, some people might feel betrayed. But, um, so there's actually a kind of two, it's like three stories happening in this thing at once. So, of course, it's a scary story. This couple, this this pregnant couple, move into this house in this farming community, um, and it's an old rickety, rundown house. But it's at the same time, it's not so rundown that it's not livable. It's just not. It needs some paint. It needs some few cabinet doors replaced. It needs like a panel here replaced. You know, one of those type of things. But it's in the seventies, and the first thing that we notice is. They moved to this this town, and this town itself was established in 1887 or 1877, and it happens to be 1977, so it's been 100 years. And so if you're watching, you're like, oh, shoot. So because this is a scary movie, we're going to walk into some scary stuff happening, right? Dun, dun, dun. A hundred years later, what's going on? Anyway, so this this... What we find out very early, and that's why I say that there's there's three different stories in this whole film. Here's the first story that really doesn't get a whole lot of play. Well, they talk about it, but there's not a lot of explanation about it. Uh, but it's definitely a thing in the film. Okay, Di- they're both Latine. Um, yeah, they're both actually Mexican-American. Both of them are Mexican-American. Only... Diana, Diana's parents immigrated to California and she was either, she was born here. Yeah, she was, she was born in the United States and her parents didn't teach her Spanish. They didn't teach her Spanish. They forbade, they forbade her to speak Spanish at home too. So they didn't teach it to her. They didn't speak it to her and they certainly forbid her from learning it. Beto recently immigrated from Mexico and it's been when I'm saying recent it's been within five years he's about five years into his uh, living in the United States so he's immersed in the culture he speaks Spanish he's even brown uh, whereas Diana is light-skinned he's brown Um, but anyway they fell in love got married and what we know is that Diana's mom does not speak to her because she married a brown skin Mexican, basically. 
And, and she makes a joke, a flippant joke to her sister that mama just wanted me to have white babies. Well, yeah, mama just wanted me to have white babies uh, and, and basically raise little gringos and I didn't want that. And so that's why she's not speaking to me, essentially. And so that speaks to <clears throat> something that I guess I think I've known about a little bit. I mean, I'm not a part of the culture, but I think I've heard growing up in the Midwest, I've had Latinx, uh, Hispanic friends. Um, no, I've, I've had Mexican-American friends. Um um, or friends that were part of the, the, the Latinx diaspora and their people were from Mexico specifically. That's what, that's what I grew up around. Um, folks who, whose heritage was in Mexico as part of the Latinx diaspora. Um, and so I had heard before that younger, the younger generation got a lot of flack from the older generation for not speaking Spanish properly or not speaking it at all. Um, and there was a whole lot of saying, oh, well, you running away from your identity. You know what I mean? I've heard that, but I never heard of this part of Latin A Hispanic history where, or at least in this Mexican American history, where new immigrants would not, would on purpose not teach their kids to speak Spanish. I heard the, the, the reverse that, the kids aren't the kids aren't learning it, and so older adults are like wagging their finger at them. Basically, that's what I that's what I've heard of before, but I'd never heard of this before. And actually, the rationale that Diana gives to—I don't even think she provides a rationale, but I think I, I gleaned it myself. She even said that when her parents moved from Mexico here, they got a lot of crap for not being able to speak English well. So they learned it and then didn't teach them her. She has a sister. Diana has a sister in this film. So um, they didn't teach her or her sister Spanish because they didn't. I think I'm, I implied myself that they didn't want their children to go through the same foolishness that they experienced. And so and so, yeah, so you've got this woman who is embracing I don't know. It feels like she's embracing her Mexican heritage and she's falling in love with this brown skinned Mexican man that is five years newly immigrated and kind of represents everything that for the most part, her family tried to repress or her parents tried to keep her from and keep deny her basically, which is part of her heritage. And that's a very interesting conversation because I can't, I can't say that that's not a, an aspect of a conversation that happens in the black community. You know what I mean? Like always wanting, it's, it's a little bit different, mind you. It's not that black people, older black people want to hide um, younger black people from their, from their language and culture. But I do think there's a respectability piece that is, is not unique. I think the, there's a respectability politics here that, you know, just like black uh, grandparents and parents always telling your kid dress this way and and speak this way when you when you when you're in, in the presence of uh, anybody in authority and white folks because if you don't you you know you you got to tap dance to their tune otherwise they won't accept you they won't give you your just due and in this context it feels very much well don't speak Spanish speak English and then you know, dress like them too, so you can get some respect. But do you see how respectability politics always, always revolves around the oppressor and not the oppressed? 
which is why we should all reject respectability politics. But in this context, them not teaching, I just felt like in, in trying to protect Diana and her sister, they like also made things a little bit worse. But like, what do you do? Like, when you're just trying to protect your kids, you do the best that you can do in that moment. And I just, I saw that as a storyline. So now here comes this daughter who <clears throat> is rejecting that respectability um, storyline or that respectability narrative. She's going to go into this. Not only is she leaving Los Angeles, a big metropolitan place, she's, go, she's leaving Los Angeles and she's going to a farming community where her husband is a migrant worker. Um, things that her parents probably look down on, um, do not respect because that's what they were trying to, perhaps that's what they were leaving when they left Mexico or whatever. And they don't respect that profession of being a farmer anyway, or a migrant worker in this, this, this community is a migrant work family. Anyway, so there's that, there's that whole push and pull of someone who's a new immigrant in Beto who is just trying to make a living and really trying to carve out his own little world in this community and still very much, he, he immigrated, but like he's very much a part of the Mexican American community. He's embracing his, his, you know, he, he's embracing this new life, but he's very much not losing his own culture. And then you have Diana who's seeking, who's running towards the culture that her parents tried to shield her from because somehow or another that they would think that that they thought that that would make her safer and give her more um afford her more ability to kind of move through the through the world and have more opportunities basically so there's that storyline so <clears throat> the other storyline that's happening here is that of a woman who essentially grew up not knowing her culture being immersed in a culture that is essentially like she doesn't speak Spanish. So when Beto speaks to her in Spanish, like he's trying to teach her a few words here and there, but like he mostly speaks to her in English. She moves to this farming community. Everybody that looks like her or is browner speaks Spanish. And, and then they look down on her. And, th and again, this is, what, this is what I'm used to seeing and hearing about people um, basically being frustrated that she cannot speak Spanish. And it feels like a rejection of their culture, which from their parents' perspective, it was a little bit of reje a rejection of culture, but it wasn't on Diana's part. It wasn't because Diana chose not to speak Spanish, or at least outright. It's not like she chose to not speak Spanish. It's just she doesn't speak Spanish. And so her adjusting to that has been awkward. And she's pregnant, by the way. She's going through all of these hormones. She's leaving what we believe might be the comforts of city life in Los, uh, Los Angeles to go to this farming community where, you know, the resources and amenities aren't available like that. And the amenities aren't that great. So <clears throat> it's like a bunch of stories happening here. And then also there is a conversation about workers' rights. It's not a big one, but it's a, it's a conversation about workers' rights and exposure to pesticides. Um, because they're far migrant farmers. So anyway, but let me, let me go on. So those are the stories that are the, 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 those are the stories that are kind of underneath this entire film. But, um, so yeah, so the, the film opens with, um, Diana and Beto in a truck moving, um, to this migrant community and they're going to go to this house and they're dropping off their stuff in this house and they stop in this convenience store. And for the first time, they're introduced to the first person that lives in this community 
in their new community in the name of uh, Anita. And Anita immediately looks at Diana and starts speaking Spanish. Um, and Anita is frustrated when Diana doesn't respond back. Diana uh, indicates that she doesn't speak Spanish. And I believe at this moment, Anita starts to speak a little bit of English, but Beto comes in and he starts speaking Spanish to her too. Um, or her instead. Anyway, at the end of their interaction, Anita asked to bless Anita and their baby. And at the end of the blessing, she also says um, that the place, like as, the, as Anita, or excuse me, as um, Diana and Beto are leaving the convenience store, um, her part, Anita's parting, parting words to her are, this town can be a wonderful place to live. And the phrasing of that rubs Diana the wrong way and it also rubs me the wrong way. And instantly, Diana is not a fan of Anita. Instantly. And I, my little ears perk because I don't know if she's not a fan of Anita because Anita speaks Spanish and that was the first person that reminded her that, that you should probably speak Spanish if you're living here and you want to be a part of this community, you should probably learn to speak Spanish. Um, and so I don't know if that's, if that's Diana's insecurity talking or, uh, you know, she's just, uh, Diana, uh, Anita was being a little bit weird to her and, you know, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like Anita was being just a little bit weird. Um, I have a note here and it says the haunting begins. The haunting begins because they go, they, they're fully moved into the house and then they, I cannot remember what happens, but somehow or another, Anita, they start finding little amulets around the house. Not amulets, but like, not effigies. Uh, what is it called when it's like, I can't remember. Somehow or another, uh, somehow or another, Diana is called or led to a shed that's on the property. And in the shed, and this, this is in the trailer. Um, she's locked inside the shed, but not before finding a diary and some other articles that were left by, by the woman who used to live in the house that they live in, Teresa. Um, anyway, so she starts to pour through these. Um, she starts slowly pouring through these documents that were left behind by Teresa. And she also finds, well, actually her husband, Beto, finds a weird looking eye looking thing. Something, it's not an amulet. It's like a trinket, but like of a, something that used to be living, um, hung up around on one of the branches of the home. And she freaks out and Beto's like, no, nah, I'm not freaking out. But like, she's freaking out. She's like, it's not normal for us to be finding weird stuff like this. Just tooling around on the house. Like that's not normal, boo-boo. Anyway, so blah, blah, blah. Diana's still having a hard time adjusting. Beto is really trying to do a good job because one of the reasons is really trying to get her to adjust and try to calm down because one of the reasons why they moved here is because not only does he have a job working on one of the farms here, but he's actually a manager managing the migrant workers 
on the farm. So that's a big deal. So he's not working the farm anymore. He's like managing the people who work on the farm, which means there's more money and more opportunity for him. So he's excited and he really wants Diana to chill out so that he can kind of, you know, they can kind of get in the groove of this community here. Um, and Diana is feeling self, she's feeling insecure. She's super pregnant. She's probably super hormonal. And, you know, she's not having a good time. She's not having a good time. Um, Anyway, so they go to, despite Diana not really wanting to go, Beto and Diana go to a, something like a company cookout um, for the, for the farming, uh, for the farmers. And the head guy, the Beto's boss, is a Mexican-American too. He speaks Spanish, but he's definitely like Americanized. His, his, his accent is very American. Or that sounds stupid. His accent is, yeah, no, his accent is a very American English. Like he grew up here. So he's essentially like Diana. He grew up in Los Angeles. Um, and so he instantly... T- there's a, in this weird interaction with Beto, he tells Beto, yeah, I, I love that you're getting along. You're acclimating here. Cause again, Beto really wants to just show this guy that he's, you know, he's cut out for this. He can really take this job on and really do a good job with it. And there's the weirdest interaction in the world happens right here as feels like foreshadowing, but it actually really didn't turn out to be a ton it didn't turn out to be too much of anything, but it was just the weirdest thing in the world where you have this Mexican-American person who's actually a first generation turns and tells this new immigrant Mexican-American man um, in Beto. Yeah, I'm glad because I'm glad that you could, you, you know, things are working out for you because, you know, I really needed somebody who could really relate to the migrant workers um, on the farm like you're a real Mexican. And then he kind of walks off and I'm like, what did you just say? And, and the same sentiment that I had, Beto has, is like, so I'm a token now. Like, you just want me to parade around like you're real Mexican. Cause I'm super brown. I speak the language. I dress like them. I'm down basically. It's just weird that your own community would kind of treat you like a token, but like, like somebody in your own community would would kind of act like a white person and treat you like a, <laughs> like a token. I could, I could appreciate that. I can appreciate that. Uh, yeah, that just, that rubbed me the wrong way. So anyway, so they're at this, they're at this um, cookout. And of course, uh, Diana has an interaction. Like she's trying to mix and mingle with the women, the women folk. Um, and she does not have a good time because they're speaking Spanish and she does not. And one of them calls her a gringo and then she gets mad. And there's a lot, there's a little bit of hate here, right? So like Diana should be learning the language, especially to be around, like, it's very white of her. Like, even though she's not white, that's a very white kind of, no, let me just take that back. Cause that sounds, it's, it's a little bit presumptuous of her to just not well, that's why I was calling it kind of a white mentality. Like, a, it's a little bit crappy for her to move to this community where she knows she's going to be around a lot of people whose first language is Spanish for her to not learn Spanish. Like she's expecting them to turn to her and speak English, which is part of that entitlement, that American entitlement piece. You know what I mean? And so 
So she's, again, she's very pregnant, very hormonal, and she's self-conscious, and she's not getting that. She wants to be a part of this community. She needs to speak the language, the primary language of this community. Like, she needs to give, too. Like, she ran away from her family because her family rejected her for marrying this brown-skinned man. Okay, well, fine. Baby, this is a part of it. You need to, like, give a little. You need to start learning Spanish, baby. Now, on the other hand, hand, these women need to, these people who are looking down on her because she doesn't speak the language, they need to be given a little bit too. Do you know what I mean? So like everybody's not right and everybody's not wrong. Not, you're not, no one's totally right. No one's totally wrong. Like there's, there's, the point is there should be some give and take in all of this. And so anyway, so... So they have this interaction and then she's frustrated and they ready. She's been ready to go because she has, again, she has this weird interaction with the women in the uh, community at the cookout, basically feeling like she's just, I don't know what the, what the equivalent, the Latin name, Hispanic version of Oreo would be. I don't know, but it's, it's, you know, it's like you're brown, you're, you're, it's and it's a slur. It's not good to say, but like it's the they treat her like the equivalent of somebody who's brown on the outside, white on the inside. That's how they treat her. But also, like she's not getting that she needs to do some work on her end too. Like they need to not treat her like that. But like she also needs to give too. Anyway, so at the end of that whole uh, scene, we see that uh, Beto's boss, whose name I never catch. Um, gives interacts with um interacts with diana and gives her this lovely looking drink that feels like a very unnatural like aqua blue color but it's called um agua fresca it feels like i don't know it looked like something like kool-aid or a soda or something like that but i'm sure it wasn't a soda it was like some sort of mixed drink probably super sugary it had a lemon in it anyway it looked good um it looked delicious, like an ocean water. Oh, if you ever been to Sonic, it looked like an ocean water. Yeah, it looked like an ocean water. I'm like, mmm, delicious. Anyway, and full of sugar too. Anyway, um, so they, the, he, um, Beto's boss sends her, sends her home with a big old jug and some food too. But this big old jug of this, this, this agua fresca. Anyway, so and she's sipping on it, and I immediately think, hmm. If this is a scary film, you didn't been blessed by this Anita woman. You didn't been locked unexplicably locked in a a shed and you found this woman's diary. Something going on with that drink. Anyway, so but she's drinking it because it's bad. You know, I'm saying it's a cold blooded drink. It looks like it's delicious and tasty. And one thing I know about pregnant women, pregnant women do love delicious and tasty things. And they do love their little treats because they deserve it for making a human and carrying a human. Anyway, so. So anyway, so I'm going to speed this up because I could I feel like I can talk about this stuff forever. So let me find my place because I took a lot of notes. Okay, so they leave the the party, and what we know is, what we see in the film is is growing fights between Diana and Beto for different reasons. 
Diana, because she's continuously feeling like an outsider and also these strange things are beginning to happen to her. And she found this, this Teresa's notebooks um, and it's pointing her to some information that she doesn't like. Um, she's also fainting. She also keeps having fainting spells, which is freaking Beto out because why the heck is my wife fainting? And I keep having to take her to the hospital, take her to the hospital throughout the course of the film. They take her to the hospital like three times. Um, and also he's trying to do a good job, trying to fit in, in this community here, trying to do a good job as a manager without being a sellout. His wife is, is as she's reading through as she's reading through these journals, she's learning more about, you know, there's supposed to be some sort of, as she's experiencing these symptoms, she's like, on the one hand, Beto is concerned about the, the, the um, symptoms she's experiencing. She's concerned about the fact that um, the farming community uses pesticides and there's some tests being done based on the research that she found or the information that she found from Teresa's um, notebooks, that there's these, the pesticide, the chemicals that they're using on these, um, these plants might be harming the workers that are harvesting the plants. And so she's, so there's this scene where Diana, after having fainted and, and, and passed out, to be honest with you, um, after having, after having done that, I think the first time after having done that, she has this encounter where she, in the middle of the night, cause you know, uh, visiting hours happen and then your loved ones, if you, if you're kept overnight, your loved ones can't be there with you. So you're by yourself. And so overnight she hears one of the other migrant woman wives, um, who's pregnant screaming in the middle of the night and she's in pain. And of course she gets up to see her. And the woman is just in pain. She's been going through some stuff. And Diana herself has been going through some stuff. So it's overwhelming. And she's, again, she's already found this information about um, chemicals and stuff. So she's thinking, shoot, are the chemicals poisoning the the women? Are the chemicals poisoning the women and the farmers, like everybody in the community? And so it's impacting pregnant women? Like, is is this what for real is happening? And so... You know, while she's doing this, Maria, so she goes and she tries to check on Maria. So remember, it's the mid, middle of the night. Maria, uh, the woman that's a migrant worker, her name is Maria Sol. She's screaming at the top of her lungs and her husband's not there. She's all by herself. So I guess as a way to kind of provide support to Maria Sol, this is where Diana comes in and supports her. And then they get to talking a little bit. And then the pains, I guess, kick up again. And then she starts to scream the maldicion, wait, maldicion, the maldicion, which is the curse. She keeps screaming the curse. The next morning, um, um, Maria Sol is, is much better. And it's like, girl, I don't know what I was talking about. I was just, I, I was in a lot of pain, but I'm good now. And so anyway, so Diana, Beto takes Diana from the hospital because She's cool. She's all right. She's cool. Um, But the one thing that I forgot to tell you is the thing that led uh, Diana to that shed, the thing that's the thing that led her, her to the shed is the reason why she had to go to the hospital the first time. 
when she went to the shed and she got the she got that that um the journal, she also got a music box. And she opened the music box and it played its tune. And she happened to be looking in the music box and then she saw a red dress and a hand with a woman, the hand extending, basically what looked like a woman wearing a red dress. And her hand was extending out to her through the mirror. And she fell out of her chair and that's what knocked her out. And that's why she had to go to observation. So what we see is while Diana's in the hospital, Beto wants to do something nice for her. So he cleans up the whole house and he's building a bassinet or whatever. Because he really wants to, he wants her to come home to something nice. And in doing that, he opens the music box so that he can have a little something playing while he's doing this work. And of course, we see the same figure appear in the red dress, appear while Beto is cleaning up, you know, preparing the house. So when Beto takes her home, brings her home the next day, she has this beautiful baby room, bassinet and everything, totally cleaned up house. Beto said he just wanted to do something nice for her. They're starting off on the right. They're, they're trying to reset because they both recognize they're under a, a lot of stress. And if you think about it, Beto is under an extreme amount of stress because he doesn't know what's happening to his wife. And it, it kind of feels like his wife is not really paying attention to her own health. And he's just going through it. So they're actually both going through it in different ways. But anyway, flash forward... Um, Anita comes over to the house and tries to give um, Diana an amulet. And here's, here's something that I just find is very ignorant of Diana. And it's just people of color, people of color, uh, brown cultures have different religious t- traditions, spiritual traditions. You may not believe in them, but you should at the very least have a respect for them. And it's very clear Diana grew up without understanding a whole lot of uh, Mexican culture because apparently this amulet that Anita wants to give her is a protection amulet. But She's like, I don't believe in that stuff. I'm, you know, like she dismisses it completely as some dumb farmer stuff. And I'm like, well, girl, you're living around these dumb farmers. So you might want to respect their culture. Like she, again, she's kind of moving. The only way I can compare it is to a white person who just is cultureless and does not appreciate other people's brown people's culture. Like she's kind of moving like that. But, and, and it's just so, it's so doggone disrespectful. Like, even if you don't believe in what they're talking about, if you believe that that amulet has no power whatsoever, why don't you take this gift that this woman is going out of her way to give you? And instead she says something, but again, this woman is hormonal. She's pregnant. She's hormonal doesn't give you a right to be rude. It's just, I understand. But anyway, instead, she's like, no, no, it's not that. It's not that, you know, this, there's, we're haunted by the curse. And even Anita is like, girl, there is a curse. Something is happening to the, the women, the migrant women in the community, which is foreshadowing because it really is a curse, but I'll go back to it. Um, I'll get back to that in a second. Anyway. So uh, there's this push and pull. There are more instances where Diana sees Teresa. The, she ends up learning that the, the Teresa, the woman whose journal she's been reading and the, who had the news article clippings and stuff is the same woman that um, she's been, that's been haunting her basically and pointing her into certain in different directions and stuff. And again, throughout the course of the film, she has like three really severe fainting spells that put her in the hospital, which is not good when you're pregnant. So anyway, at the end of the film, two things we learn. 
There's a moment where Beto and Diana have a really big argument and Beto makes a point to her. He finally points out, he was like, Diana, I have been asking you since we've been together, since before we were married, please learn Spanish. Please learn Spanish. Oh, here's the other thing. Diana is a writer. Diana is a writer. And so one of the things that she was going to do living in this community was write. While her husband was working the farm, she was going to write. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with being a writer. It just, it, I don't know. It, it, I don't know. It's something about that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like your husband is going to be slaving away in this field and you're just going to be home writing your book. Like, whatever and then in the midst of this somehow or another she turns into something like an activist where she's like going down this path where she's really trying to um you know get down to the bottom of what's going on with these women and it's not a spiritual thing they're it's the pesticides it's the pesticides that they're that you know that they're using in the in the field that's getting to these women and to all of these folks and in, in the meantime what we know is that the Diana is not only passing out and having these fainting spells, but she also develops a rash, a really nasty rash. So whatever is happening to the migrant women is also happening to her. And so anyway, so we get to this point where she goes to doctors and they're, you know, just trying to get her to settle down and relax. And long story short, we get to the end of this film. And so it kind of collapses into two stories. Oh, do I want to spoil this? There's a reason why Teresa is haunting Diana. And it has less to do with the pesticides and more to do with how these women are being, the fact that the women, the the migrant women in the community are being targeted. And remember at the beginning of the film, I told you that this was like a a reality horror film. Well, without spoiling it for you, what I'll say is what we know that what we know is that American history is sometimes more scary and more cruel than any villain, any monster in scary movies can be. And so this story is no exception. And again, I think one of the reasons why one of the reasons why this film is kind of dubbed in the 60s to 66 from a lot of these raiders and why perhaps the audience from the tomato, uh, the Rotten Tomatoes scored it very poorly is because the story itself is a really good story and it's compelling. I think Diana's character in the hour and 23 minutes that this that this film allows the ups and downs and the nuances that this that this character in Diana misses sometimes can't be overlooked like again how does she move to a farming community that she knows is going to be predominantly new immigrant Mexican Americans and she doesn't speak Spanish she doesn't even attempt to speak Spanish until weird things start to happen to her oh not even weird things start to happen to her until she, like she learns to, she tries to learn to speak Spanish only to understand what um, Teresa is saying in her journal, which frustrates Beto because Beto Ben asked her to learn Spanish so that they could converse. They can converse more um, because she's, she's the one that's talking about she wants to 
you know, reclaim her Mexican heritage. Well, girl, part of that is speaking the language too. doesn't make you less Mexican if you don't, or doesn't make you less, less Latin A if you don't. Um, it's just, you know, learn, learn the language, learn the language, especially of the people that, that you're going to be around. Like that does, that feels very entitled to me and very disrespectful too. And I can't believe that she didn't get that. Um, and, and I, I also couldn't believe how she couldn't get that that would upset her husband. But anyway, I mean, sometimes we're just obtuse, even in relationships with people we care about deeply. Sometimes we can just be so obtuse. And this was one of her moments. Also, Beto should have done more to try to protect her or at the very least create a community of care around her because she's freaking pregnant and super hormonal. But again, sometimes we don't, we're that we be thick headed and dense around the people and, and, and dense to the fact, so to some, to some real, real issues that are going on with the people that we love the most. Um, but the thing that bought the, the, uh, you know, the thing that really kind of is a stick in my crawl is Beto in trying to do so well in his job and provide for his family misses a whole lot of flat red flags in this community. First off, the house that they're staying in, which used to belong to Teresa, actually also belonged to the boss of the uh, overseeing the farm, which seems like a bad idea. And it turns out it was a bad idea um, for reasons which you'll come to know when you watch the whole film. But what we know is that conscription, well, is it conscription? What is it when, like those those coal mining towns in West Virginia who used company script instead of money to buy things, and so they were perpetually in debt to the company? Y'all have heard about that before. If you're from the United States, you, I'm sure you've heard about it before. If, you're not, if you haven't, if you're not from the United States or if you are from the United States, but you've never heard of that before, Google it. There were whole communities in West Virginia and actually a lot of rural communities across the Midwest and even in California in the West and the South. Um, it was kind of like sharecropping in that you stayed on the, it's, it's, it's like the premise of sharecropping in that, well, no, at least with sharecropping, you could keep you could keep some of the crop that you were growing and for yourself. But in the context of some of these stores and these coal mines, what they used to do is instead of paying you in U.S. dollars, they would pay you in company money that you could only spend in the company stores. So you could only go to the company grocery store to buy groceries, company clothing store to buy clothes, so on and so on. So in essence, if you ever left the company, you would literally have no money to do anything else. So it was a way for them to just keep people around and keep people in debt to them. And so I'm looking back on them staying in this house that the boss offered them to stay in. And I'm like, so if y'all have a fallout, where y'all staying? You know, like it feels on the face of it, it feels very big of you, very big hearted of you to offer this opportunity to offer up a home for someone to stay in who's newly moved to the area. But like, not if you my boss. No, ma'am. That's not going to happen. And so again, Beto and, and Diana come to regret that decision later because this is reality horror, but there's still horror in it. There's still like fictional horror in it. Wrapped up around the actual horror that's in it. Um, but yeah, it also t- it 
so yeah, so there's some red flags that Beto should have seen. Um, but I get why he missed them. If he is a new immigrant, he's really trying to make his mark in the community. He's got this bride who's, who's with child and, and, you know, really trying to make something of his life and really try to do something, step out there and be big and bold. And he, he even mentions at one point, he's the first of his family, which clearly I've, I've, it, it implies in this film that his family is migrant workers in his family of migrant workers, he's the first manager, which is a big deal and something that he cherishes and something that he wants to do a good job. Like he doesn't want to be the first one to be a manager and he blows it somehow. So he's got a lot of pressure on his, on him, uh, on his shoulders. But at the same time, his, in his zeal to be a good manager, he's missing some of these red flags that are, that this community is just setting forth. And so I guess the last thing that I want to leave you with is there is a reason why the, the curse that Anita is talking about is actually real, despite uh, Diana basically thumbing her nose at uh, Anita and, and looking at her as kind of like a a hick and, and just a, a, a dumb country woman um, who believes in dumb country cult customs. Like the women and the people of that migrant community were actually, they were under a curse. Only the curse is the same curse that has plagued black and brown people, people of color in general, in the United States, across the globe forever. And that is racist white people. And some of the things that they subject poor brown people to. Um, mm Mm-hmm. And the way it manifests is is something to behold. The ending of this thing, like the last 15 minutes of this thing is wild. Actually, the last 20 minutes of this movie is really, 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 really wild. I would encourage you to watch the whole thing, but prepare yourself for the last 20 minutes because there's a piece of this that breaks my whole heart. And you'll see what I'm talking about when you watch it, but yeah. Um, overall, I think I think this film does deserve the 66%. It's not better than that. I don't think it deserves 60, but I don't think it's better than 66. It's okay. It does not give you the jump scares that you want. Not all of them and not all the time. Um, it also doesn't delve deep into, like you you figure out the story pretty pretty quickly. Like you figure out the horror of it probably within the first 45 minutes and then the rest of your time is just figuring out how we're going to get to the conclusion. And then the last 20 minutes are a wild ride. So there's a lot to be desired, even though you kind of figure it out in the beginning, or like in the in the first 45, not first 45, shoot, first 30. Um, so yeah, it's not better than the 66, but it's good. I really appreciate it for being a predominantly brown cast. Um... And I really appreciate it for bringing up some things that, again, in this age where we're not trying to talk about American history because we don't want to offend white people, um, it's good to know that there's still going to be film that's going to be here forever that will remind us of some of the things that people would want you to forget. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not super scary. It's just... It's a traumatic, it's a traumatic past that some people want us to forget, but we should always remember because what we know is that aspects, well, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to ruin it. Just watch the film. Just watch it. 
Um, anyway, yeah, that's that's really it. I, I feel like I've talked about a lot enough, given you a lot of uh, my mind. Um, anyway, so I hope you were listening to this and you're doing some sort of task or you're just relaxing or you're driving or whatever. I hope you were I was able to get you to at least more than halfway through that task or get you more than halfway down the road or, um, you know, help you get through whatever you were listening, you know, you were doing while you were listening to this. So appreciate you for listening again. Um, thank you. If you're a first time listening, a first time listener, welcome. Hey, how you doing? I ramble a lot. Um, and I talk about race a lot, (laughs) a lot. Um, it seems to be something I talk about every episode. I try not to make it the biggest part of what I do, but here lately, it's just seems to be everywhere in the films that I'm watching. Um, or reminds me of it in the films that I'm watching. So anyway, thank you for indulging me. Um, if you want to rate this thing favorably, feel free to do so on the purple app or anywhere where you listen to this thing. If I find your review, I will read it. Um, because ultimately you were rating this thing favorably and you reading, you know, leaving reviews helps me continue to do this thing that I do. That is very much a hobby. Um, so I appreciate you for enabling me to do that. Um, like I said, next week, I'm, I'm going to watch harder they come. So hopefully you'll get to watch it too. And then we can talk about it. Um, leave me a message. If you know, you have thoughts about it or what have you, I will read those as well. Um, yeah. So until next time, have a wonderful day, evening, afternoon, good time, whatever. Be safe this Halloween. Be smart this Halloween. Get your booster shot if you can. Okay. Until next time.